many Americans are rethinking life in the big city. Take Katie Garner. We just moved to Augusta, Georgia this summer uh, in July. Before that, we were in New York City. Uh, We were there fairly briefly. We were only there for about a year. Uh, And before that, we were in Austin, Texas for a long time. Austin previously wasn't (laughs) considered a, a big city, but it definitely has gotten that way over the past decade or so. Now, Katie says living in both Austin and New York was great, but it was also making it hard to achieve their financial and lifestyle goals. They couldn't afford to buy a home and worried they'd be stuck renting forever. So when she tried to balance all the good things about New York against the less good things... Some of the perks of living in a big city, you know, all of the really cool things to do in big cities, those are awesome, but we weren't doing those things most of the time. We have two little kids, and so the things that we do in our free time are we go to lots of parks, we go on lots of walks, you know, my husband and I like to go see movies in the theater, and all of these things are things that you can do in many cities across the U.S., so nine months into living in Augusta, we are Super, super happy here. I'm really glad that we made the change. That's Katie Garner, now in Augusta, Georgia. Now here's Susan Hewlett and her husband. They made the jump from Seattle to Walla Walla, Washington before the pandemic, around seven years ago. We both lost some people close to us and kind of had a wake-up call and thought, you know what, we don't want to live in the big city anymore. We want to go live our dream in a smaller town. So we did it. We switched our careers. My husband opened a brewery here. This is a big wine town. We have 200 wineries, and it's agricultural and wine. That's all that's going on, and the prison. (laughs) And a couple little universities, little liberal arts colleges. So anyway, it's a scene. It's different, but we're here, and we love it. I work remotely for Microsoft from here. I was actually hired here after I moved to Walla Walla. They hired me remotely. So that was a big enabler to make this all kind of work very well. And then there's Kevin, who recently moved out of Philadelphia to the suburbs. Mainly is because the remote work and uh, the cost of living, and as well as the high crime rate in the city uh, that, that made us move. Um, and we also able to get away from all the noises, the pollution, and uh, many of the toxic environment um, in, in a very blue city. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and okay, I get it. A bunch of anecdotes like those are kind of like a constellation of stars. You can draw any picture from them that you want. There's also the problem of selection bias, of course. But there is a larger data set that points to a true change in population flows in the United States. First of all, Two million people left America's largest cities during the pandemic. It's only an inflow of immigrants into those cities that prevented the population declines from being even greater. Okay, so to that one, you could say, hey, that is pandemic-related data, and maybe it's just a blip, a two- or three-year blip in the growth of cities in America. But what it is is a major spike in what has also been a longer-term pre-pandemic trend the flattening out of the growth curve for America's big cities. The Economic Innovation Group finds that large urban counties have lost residents steadily for the past decade, each year since 2013. So we can talk about the impact that's having on places like New York, San Francisco, Seattle, and the like, and we will. 
Today, though, we will also talk about the impact this shift is having on places those former urbanites are going. America's suburbs, exurbs, and small towns. And how has that changed life for people who were already living there, far away from the city? Well, Peter Nelson joins us. He's a professor of geography at Middlebury College in Vermont. Professor Nelson, welcome. Thank you for having me. Okay, so I I laid out some facts that suggest that this is more than just a pandemic-era blip. So let's check that, though, a little bit more. Are people starting to move back into the cities now that uh, we've had a, a significant relaxation in concerns and constraints around the pandemic? I think inevitably that we will see some rebound of people that initially left during the pandemic and then now have decided to move back. But I think more fundamentally, the reorganization of the relationship between home and work is going to enable more people to reconsider the degree to which they want to stay in a city. And I think that has big implications for particularly medium and small sized cities and um, more remote rural regions. Uh, The data suggests that there has been a significant shift out of the biggest cities down the urban hierarchy to those um, small metro and what we call micropolitan areas. Mm -hmm. Okay, so actually what we should do is set out some definitions here because honestly when I think of the word cities, right – you know, I can. I'm obviously living here uh, in Boston right now, so I could think of like Boston proper itself, but that's not really what I'm talking about when I say cities related to Boston. I'm talking about like the greater Boston metropolitan area. So when when we in this in this context, when we're saying Americans are leaving the cities, how do we define what the cities are? So the analysis that I do um, uses kind of a hierarchical classification, where you have and my units are counties are the units of analysis. Counties, and, okay. And counties are classified as, you know, most crudely either metropolitan or non-metropolitan, but that's a really crude distinction. There are, I use a slightly more refined distinction where we have core counties of the largest metropolitan areas. So these are metropolitan areas with, you know, maybe 2 million or more people. Okay. Then there are the fringe counties, which are also metropolitan, but they're not that that the the county where the the principal city of the metropolitan area is. Then we have medium metropolitan areas, the smallest metropolitan areas. Then we have micropolitan. <laughs> so for a city to, for a uh, area to be classified as metropolitan, it needs to have a principal city or urban population of greater than 50,000 people. Mm -hmm. Micropolitan counties are those counties that have an urban population of 10 to 50,000 people. Okay. And then what we might call non-core counties are the remainder of counties that don't have an urban population exceeding 10,000 people. So you can kind of rank those the the counties along that urban continuum. Okay, give me some examples then, because um, like, what would you say? Obviously, the large metros; those are those are self evident. Those are the New Yorks, yeah. the Los Angeles, the Chicago. Give me an example of, of a of a fringe county. A fringe county would be, say, for New York, it could be Nassau County. Okay. Uh, so, kind of the the suburban county around those those biggest 
metro areas. A micropolitan area is a place like um, Montpelier, Vermont. I was going to say, not or, very far from where you are. <laughs> yeah, or uh, um, the upper valley of where there's like Hanover, Lebanon, White River Junction uh, in the the up, upper valley of the Connecticut River. Mm -hmm. That's a micropolitan region. So it's got some of that urban feel to it, but it's on a much smaller scale. Mm -hmm. And then do you have an example of like a, of a medium one? Oh, um, medium metro might be uh, Asheville, North Carolina. Ah, okay. Um, something like that. And, okay. and I, to be perfectly honest, I don't know if that would be medium or small. I don't have a, a list of this classification, but you can get a sense for, you know, how it might be different from the large metro. Yeah, yeah. And Asheville actually has a lot going on. That's a really interesting example. Yeah, um, absolutely. Okay. So I, I, I appreciate you naming some names for us because that helps give me sort of a more concrete basis then to understand like what's happening in terms of the flows of of people in this country. Now, you've been studying um, urban to rural migration specifically for what, three decades now? Yeah, I got interested in this in graduate school in the 1990s because we started to see it was it was the first time when at least a small segment of the labor force could begin to work remotely. Um, and we started to see some flows of people leaving cities towards what we might call amenity destinations, amenity non-metropolitan destinations in Western Colorado, in Southern Idaho, those kinds of places. And it led to this, this what we, what demographers and rural geographers call amenity, amenity migration. Mm -hmm. mm. And you, you name, yeah, the uh, Northern California, you talked about Idaho. I just have to give a shout out to Oregon because that's where I grew up. Uh, <laughs> but I understand what you mean by amenity destinations because this, the 90s was around the time where we saw a lot of Californians moving north to Oregon and Washington always held it against them ever since then. But uh, but Professor Nelson, interestingly, though, at that time, you were at the University of Washington in Seattle? Correct. Okay. So isn't that fascinating? This was the 90s. And now we just heard from a listener earlier who had moved from Seattle to Seattle to Walla Walla, Washington, because Seattle has succumbed to, um, you know, some of the ch major challenges that America's big cities are facing. I mean, there are long-term Seattleites who would say, like, they can't even recognize their city right. anymore. When I go back to visit Seattle, I don't recognize the city that I was a graduate student in. Why? It just, it's... The landscape is so different. You know, the cost of living is so, so much higher. Traffic is unbearable. Um, and yeah, it just seems to be a fundamentally different beast than it was. It's, it is now fundamentally different than it was 30 years ago. Yeah. So then tell me, um, looking across that arc of the past 30 years, m make the argument to me that... We've got about 30 seconds before our first break, so I'll let you start the argument okay. that what we're seeing with cities now is something more than just this pandemic blip. I think what we're seeing now is kind of an amplification of uh, a phenomena that it has existed previously. The pandemic has enabled it to be greater uh, for a larger population to be able to act on this this desire to leave the city for the countryside. Okay, so it sort of it it, it allowed the, the that pent up 
need to to expand and people finally t- took action. Okay, so Professor Peter Nelson, hang on for a moment. We are talking today uh, about not just the fact that Americans in larger numbers than before are leaving the big metro areas, but we'll talk about where they're going and why and what impact the inflows into America's smaller and rural areas are having on those places. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And today we're talking about how the pandemic and the massive outflows of people from American cities during the pandemic actually revealed a trend that had been going on much longer, sorry, much earlier than that, that people are leaving cities and moving to suburbs, exurbs, and America's small towns. And we're going to explore what the impact that's having on those small towns. I'm joined today by Peter Nelson. He's a professor of geography at Middlebury College. And let's listen to some of what uh, several on-point listeners told us about their recent life decisions. This is John Brennan. He left Newton, Massachusetts, a city of about 90,000 people, and he moved to a town about 30 miles west, Upton, Massachusetts, population about 8,000. And here's what he said to us. I did it primarily because I'm 68 and I was looking for one floor living to get rid of stairs, but also to buy more house for less money. The challenges, however, of moving from a bigger city to a smaller one is the isolation. It doesn't have as much going on as the city of Newton, which has 10 times as many people. However, it's only been five months and already I'm beginning to adjust to a slower pace and a much, much more pleasant surroundings um, closer to nature and so forth. So it's been a, a win-win for me. That's John Brennan now of Upton, Massachusetts. And here's Glenn Peterson. He grew up in Minnesota, but then lived on Manhattan's Upper West Side for 46 years. Glenn retired and moved back to the Midwest, to Davenport, Iowa, to be close, but not too close, he says, to his family. He says the move actually hasn't been easy. It would be an understatement to say that this has been a seriously challenging adjustment. That said, I have friends who point out to me that I have done a remarkable job making my way in uh, this new community. I joined the temple here even though I wasn't Jewish because I miss my New York Jewish friends so much. Uh, I curate art film series throughout the year at the Figgy Art Museum, uh, including a gay pride film series in June. And of course, I visit New York City often. 
That's Glenn Peterson in Davenport, Iowa. Professor Nelson, um, I want to talk for a second about who's moving, because we just heard from two folks who were retirees, essentially. Are we seeing a lot of a lot of that, um, America's retirees sort of rethinking city life because, I mean, for infrastructure reasons, for family reasons, things like that? Well, the data that I've looked at most recently doesn't allow me to disaggregate different demographic groups. But mm-hmm. I have looked at the, um, in the past, so in the 2000s and 2010s, the impact of the aging baby boomers on urban to rural migration trends. And it's very clear that um, this large demographic bulge of the boomers and the, the clips that you just shared would definitely be part of the baby boom. These are the, the propensity to make an urban to rural move increases considerably when populations age into their 50s and 60s. Um, so undoubtedly, some of this population shift f- from cities to more rural areas is driven by overall demographic, uh, a changing demographic composition of the U.S. population. Mm, okay, so let's then talk about sort of the the next demographic bulge that comes after the boomers, and that is that is millennials. Um, right. And I know that you don't necessarily have sort of this this uh, disaggregated data, but maybe we can just still nevertheless talk about the fact that I kind of wonder whether or not the the move of many millennials out of cities is part of what is essentially a long-standing American pattern, right? Especially post the Second World War, that you may, uh, you know. Have, with the rise of the suburbs, you may go to the city in your 20s to follow the bright lights and, you know, big city opportunities. But then, you know, especially now with prices being what they are, maybe when you, uh, you know, find a life partner or you have kids or things change and you need to like be, to have a home or a yard, the city isn't going to do it anymore. So is that one of the major drivers that's pulling uh, millennials out of cities? I mean, that's that's as you described, that's a pattern and process through the life course that's repeated itself for several generations now. So there's no reason to believe that the current generation of people in their, you know, late 20s to mid to late 30s is going to behave much differently. And I think the compounding that with the pandemic made people kind of uh, a little more cautious about going all in to living in a very dense urban environment. Mm-hmm. And I think that's in part what we might see as driving some of the attraction of these medium and smaller cities, uh, because you can get a little bit of the urban environment in an Asheville without having to share it with you know, 11 million people in the New York metro area or you know, in Southern California. Right. So this is, I think, one of the most interesting things about your analysis. And I think it's something that may be markedly different from 20, 30, 40 years ago. I mean, you call it a, sh- a shift down the urban hierarchy, but that it's not necessarily a shift down in life, right? Because, because opportunities... Are, are are now more available outside those metro cores. Absolutely. And I think there's, um, there's some of those urban quality of life attributes that you can access pretty easily in smaller metro areas. So you can have, have that urban lifestyle, but you're not necessarily constrained to only being able to get it in a Chicago 
or a New York or a Dallas. Um, yeah. Well, and, yeah, I mean, just to, just to note, when we heard from Glenn Peterson, who's now in Davenport, Iowa, even though he said, yeah, he really, really missed his New York friends, uh, he he's curating an art series um, in in Davenport, Iowa, and um, he still visits New York, too. So there isn't a sense of, like, leaving all that behind anymore. Right. Right. Mm. And so then um, tell me a little bit more about what you found. What does that mean then for the cities themselves? If if the if the main drivers of the attraction to moving to a city, job, cultural opportunities, uh, et cetera, are no longer unique to them, what does that mean? Well, I think it gives the each individual household a little more flexibility in choosing the residential environment that they're most interested in. You know, some of the the clips that you shared leading into this described people who are like, well, I wanted to take walks or go to parks and I could get that and I don't need to be in New York to do that. So for the, there may be more opportunities to people, for people to act on residential preferences now. Um, And those preferences might be, you know, I want a really urban lifestyle. I want to be able to go to the theater. I want to be able to, you know, have an array of different restaurants. People can make that choice, but be having to be limited based on place of employment, there seems to be a little more flexibility now as people may be able to arrange more flexible work uh, situations so that they can choose from a wider array of residential options. Mm-hmm. I think it was interesting that um, John, who moved from Newton, didn't move that far from Boston, right? but moved far enough to gain access to some of the attributes that, that his household wanted. Um, so there was a, there's a greater degree of flexibility there. Mm. So I want to shift then. Well, we'll come back to sort of what this means for cities in terms of... Um, uh, how it might be immigrant inflows that that save cities, but also um, real estate, et cetera. We'll come back to that. But since you you, you mentioned um, what people are seeking and that they can find it more readily and more affordably in in smaller towns and rural places in the United States, we've we've got a really interesting comment from Ruth who reached out to us on Facebook, and Professor Nelson, she's in Vermont, rural Vermont, so not far from where you are. And Ruth says, people with much greater financial resources from working and accessing education in other places are flocking here, again, rural Vermont, and those of us who have been here our whole lives or generations can no longer afford housing and face great competition for jobs. It's reaching a crisis point. What do you think about that? I think Ruth is right on point. You know, we think about processes of gentrification as being the domain of urban environments. You know, it happens in Brooklyn. The same kind of transformations are playing out in rural areas. And Vermont is a classic example where people arrive with accumulated wealth they bid up property and there's an ensuing uh, shift in the class composition of these rural environments. That's not dissimilar to what's gone on in Park Slope. Um, So we can think of some of these transformations using a vocabulary and a language of gentrification 
just applying that phenomena in a small town and rural environment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the busiest sector in Vermont is home building and uh, home remodeling. Like you can't, like if you need to hire a contractor to do work on your home, it's really hard because they're so busy doing these big remodel jobs, these custom uh, home builds. Yeah. It's interesting because then, I mean, I think it uh, it forces us to, to try to f- dig deeper for analysis about whether um, people who are able to sort of import their remote jobs into more rural places, how much are, are, is that particular brand of rural gentrification contributing to actually building the economic base in those rural communities? So, so Professor Nelson, hold on for just a second because I want to bring in Ben Winchester now. He joins us from St. Cloud, Minnesota. And he's a rural sociologist with the University of Minnesota Extension Department of Community Development. Ben Winchester, welcome to you. Hi, Meghna. Okay, so so I know you've been looking at life in uh, rural America for a long time, but let's just get right to it. What do you think about this idea of rural gentrification going on? Right. Well, I, I think, number one, it just shows that rural is in high demand. Uh, we wouldn't be in this position where, you know, if we had plenty of housing stocks laying around and people could just buy these cheap properties. But uh, I think during the pandemic, it really shone a light on the fact that rural America is not dying. Our homes are all filled. They were essentially filled. And uh, Professor Nelson talked about this. They were filled in the 90s, uh, essentially, in this trend of uh, rural uh, rebound, rural renaissance is another word for it, started uh, literally in the 1970s and started to peep two point, And then that continued all the way through the 2000s, where now our, our homes are filled, our communities are filled. It's very hard to find a home for sale. And so when the pandemic hit, uh, it really exacerbated the issue around a high demand in an already tight supply. So that just exacerbated our home value. So we are seeing dramatic changes. Uh, we, we are not in a different world uh, than urban America is. We are subject to the same kinds of traits uh, of the broader world and the broader residential preferences. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. Okay, so, but, but Ben, tell me more about, um, you, you've been documenting who's moving into rural communities. So who, how would you describe who they are? Yeah, so uh, I like to call this the brain gain. It counters the negative narrative around the brain drain. And we have found that uh, there's been a consistent pattern of people in their 30s, 40s, and 50s moving to just about every rural county in this country. This has been happening again since the 70s. It really took off in the 90s. So we've done a number of studies now that uh, are asking newcomers, you know, hey, when did you move here? What kind of job do you have? And 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 really, what were the factors for this move? So we look at kind of push and pull factors. What we found was the top three reasons that people give as to why they made the move into rural America, where number one was a slower pace of life. We've heard this very consistently, access to recreation, getting away from a commute, a number of factors related to that. Uh, The second top reason is safety and security, Mm -hmm. and that's especially high with people with children. And then the third top reason is the low cost of housing. That's relative, uh, again, to maybe urban markets. But uh, nowhere really surprised us in, in the top 10 in Minnesota anyway was a job. And of course, people need to find a job. But we're finding, as uh, Professor Nelson mentioned early on, that we've really had a decoupling for us between uh, work and uh, and, empl- and where people choose to put their home. So when these become separated spatially, we, we, we become a, a bigger playground, especially in rural America. We know, you, you know, you live in a 
kind of a large area and you have to have transportation to get to and from, uh, not dissimilar to living in suburbs. So this trend has been very consistent and people enjoy living there. Uh, they may not have seen themselves living in a rural community in their 20s, but this is part of that life cycle that people go through, hmm. where our core urban areas are attractive to people and they're you know between the 18, age of 18 to 29. But outside of that, people start moving out. And so in many ways, I would argue that our urban areas across this country have not grown taller, they've grown wider. And they've mm. grown wider to the extent that since 1970, all of the urban growth has happened at the expense of taking over these rural counties. So our rural places in, uh, in America become so popular, they become urbanized, which again, from my data point of view, it looks like our populations go down when essentially we just shifted people from oh, the rural category to the urban category. That's interesting. So there's a very interesting kind of in and out flow that we've had for decades. This is not new, um, but it, it's very interesting to look at the life cycle of these households. I hear you saying, hey, media, you've gotten the narrative all wrong for years about, about rural America. Is that what you're saying, Ben? Uh, more about the urban idealism, I would say. The urban you know, idealism. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Right. No, go, go. Tell me more. Yeah, I think there's an ideal out there that, you know, again, related to population growth, we we tend to use population growth as our ideal. Like if we're not growing, we're dying. Uh, as if, you know, there's nobody here. <laughs> when If you look across our rural communities, what you'll find is our homes are filled. But the, what, what is different is our homes are filled with older people. We have a higher proportion of people over the age, you know, are essentially baby boomers and older. Three quarters of rural homeowners are baby boomers and older, and all these homes are going to turn over. But right now, it's very slow. Uh, this generation is staying in their homes, which actually inhibits the ability of new people to move into these communities with finite housing stocks because there's literally nowhere for them to live. So while demand is through the roof, uh, if you don't have access to a local housing supply, it's going to be very difficult to move in. Mm. You know, don't tell my managers, Ben, but I'm seriously questioning why I still broadcast from Boston. Um, <laughs> don't tell anybody except everyone who's listening to this right now. Um, but but OK, so but okay, if, if we're if we're going to be sort of um, uh cliche busting today. I do want to ask you, there's a lot of talk about the, the you know, the present and future being um, driven by the knowledge economy and knowledge workers, et cetera. And cities still want to say, like, you want to be part of that? Come to us. But did the pandemic also just bust that wide open? Because it doesn't sound like you're saying that you can't be part of the knowledge economy if you move to uh, to smaller places. No, that's right. I think, you know, we use broadband access as a key indicator for us in terms of that infrastructure that's needed in our small towns and rural places to help support this knowledge economy. And we do have it. I think, again, there might be a negative narrative out there regarding, you know, the digital divide. But I would argue we have many rural places that have fiber to the farm. And we've got co-ops and other private sector investments being made across rural communities. And we had found the latest newcomer survey we did was in 2019, and a full 20% of newcomer households were telecommuting before the pandemic. Well, Ben Winchester and Peter Nelson, hang on for just a second because we've got a lot more to talk about when we come back. And we're looking at where Americans are going when they leave our big cities. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. 
as long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and we're joined today by Ben Winchester and Peter Nelson. And Professor Nelson, I know we've got to let you go because you have a class to teach, but I did want to give you a sort of a, a, a last shot at the mic here. What do you think about what Ben Winchester has been saying about um, how we need to understand uh, America's rural cities and towns? Well, there's two things that struck me in Ben's comments that I think are worth amplifying, um, and that is, you know, there are a lot of people that are arriving in rural areas. Rural areas tend to be older and the housing issue in rural areas during the pandemic has been amplified by newcomers bidding up property values and housing. And we don't have a good system for moving the elder, the older rural populations out of their houses. So there's kind of a log jam, which uh, is creating real pressures in rural communities. So that's that's one um, point that I would like to emphasize that Ben brought up. And the second one, you asked um, about that knowledge economy and sort of the ability to participate in that knowledge economy from rural regions. I still think there will be a draw for cities. I think, you know, cities are going to are and remain important, particularly in some of in in certain industrial sectors. The point is that workers in those industries won't be obligated to live in cities. Mm. They'll have the possibility to live in other places and participate. Maybe not at the early stages of their career, but once established in their career, they have they will have more residential flexibility, and that creates possibilities for certain workers to choose a different kind of uh, residential option um, and still participate fully in finance or IT or tech or what have you, when in the past you would have had to have been on Wall Street to participate in finance or in Silicon Valley or in Seattle to be, to be amongst the movers and shakers in tech. And I think that that constraint is is reduced to, tum- to some extent now. Hmm. Well, Peter Nelson, professor of geography at Middlebury College, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank, thank you for having me. 
All right. Ben Winchester in St. Cloud, Minnesota. Um, I, I want to just do a quick reality check here because I was, I'm very inspired by your, your cliche-busting uh, approach here. But, you know, when you talk about how um, uh, maybe the, the urban ideal had been overemphasized, at the same time, you know, there's been years and years and years of media coverage, um, and I would say by virtue of that, a broader national understanding or maybe misunderstanding of what's has what of what's been happening in some more many rural communities in this country, and I'm talking about places where, um, you know, industry left, leaving a, an economic crater behind, or uh, with agriculture, with the uh, you know the consolidation of family farms into larger and larger corporate farms, and the how that put uh, farmers behind the eight ball. You know, we've been seeing recently more even a decline in life expectancy for working class white Americans in rural in rural places. Um, so, it you know it hasn't all been. Um, you know, uh, po- positivity and just misunderstanding. I mean, do you do you disagree that those challenges have persisted in rural places? Uh, well, sure. We've closed lots of grocery stores, mm-hmm. hardware stores, school buildings across rural America over the past 50, 60 years. But I, I would argue many of the trends, uh, especially over the past 20, 30 years, uh, have really been durable. Our small towns are still here. Our rural places are still here. None of those closures cause the death of our towns. Uh, our homes are still filled. Uh, we are actually more diverse socially, economically, demographically than ever before. And this, and we're desirable. I mean, the Pew Research Institute did a study in 2009, as early as 2009, that asked Americans, like, we know 80% of you live in the city and 20% of you live in the country, but if you could live wherever you wanted, where would you live? And 51% of Americans said they'd prefer to live in small towns and rural places. So I think there's uh, there might be a narrative of uh, death and decline in rural that actually inhibits the ability for us to consider these rural places as viable places to succeed. Uh, for our for our families and for our households, so this does um, the the negative narrative persists. Uh, it, it's very apparent in, in the inclination for people to believe that our towns are dying. But then again, uh, if you rather believe our small towns are stable, uh, not stagnant, even that you have a whole different set of strategies to help towns. I mean, if you believe your town is dying, you're going to have one set of strategies. If you believe your town is stable and has potential for the future, then you end up with another set of strategies. So it really uh, for us is working on the ground with local leaders to understand some of these dynamics of why your homes are filled with older people right now and what might happen over the next 20 years when, you know, 70% of your homes become substituted out. You're, you know, one and two person households are literally dying and mm. you're bringing in three to five person households. This is a new path forward for rural that we haven't had an opportunity to see before. Mm. Okay. Well, uh, Ben, you're in St. Cloud, Minnesota. Let's hop over to Guthrie, Oklahoma for a moment. And that's where Hetty Coleman lives. Hetty is the host of the Guthrie America podcast and pastor at North Church Guthrie. Pastor Coleman, welcome to you. Thank you for having me. And Good I, day to you. And I understand that the, the current population of Guthrie, Oklahoma is just a little bit north of about 11,000. Is that right? Yes. Okay. So, so tell me a little bit about what uh, Guthrie is like. Uh, Guthrie is, has a, a small town feel, but I, I like to say we're, we're we're a little bit bigger than most small towns, uh, but very um, all the things that you would think of when it comes to downtown uh, to to small towns. We all kind of have this feeling of that we all know each other, but may not be true. Uh, people are walking and in strollers and. Just has that really small town feel. Okay, and have you lived there your whole life? So I was born in Guthrie. Uh, 
then left in 1992 uh, for college and then recently moved, well, not recently now, 2007, moved back. Ah, so you came, okay, so after college you came back. Was that always part of your plan? Uh, I would say no. Uh, it wasn't until I started getting older that I started really seeing the value of living in a smaller community. And, and, and my family and I had an episode living in the big city. And so uh, after we had the episode, we was like, OK, I think it's time to get to a place to where uh, we can have that feeling that everybody's going to know us. I see. Pastor Coleman, do you, do you mind if I ask what that episode was? No, not at all. So my uh, wife is driving down the street in Oklahoma City, and uh, she sees a kid running down the street, and she says, is that my son? And when they got closer to him, she was with her mom, they get closer to him, and uh, they recognize that it is our son, Kenneth, and she grabs Kenneth and then takes him back to the school and plays a very mean joke. I had nothing to do with this. This is all on her. And she asked for her son. And then they're rapidly looking for him all through the school until about a few minutes later, she then says she has him in the car. And uh, after that episode, when we had a real conversation just about moving somewhere smaller and, and being in a community that we would feel safe if my son sneaks out of the school to go use the restroom. Oh, okay. I got it. This is first. This is second grade, too. So <laughs> Second grade. Second wow. grade. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. So I can see how that maybe put a little chill in your spine about if the school didn't even know where your second grader was. Yeah. 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 Oh. And, you know, I, we didn't blame the school. My son shouldn't have busted out of the school <laughs> at, at the same time, you know. And so that can kind of go uh, back and forth. But uh, living in some place like Guthrie, if that if that was to happen, the chances are greater of somebody seeing him and knowing who he is. And then I just felt like uh, we have our own issues in, in, in small towns, but it just feels a little bit safer to us. Mm-hmm. Okay. So tell me then, since uh, you said 2007 was when you moved back, to yep. to Guthrie, uh, between then and now, how has the community changed, and if so, how? Yeah, I think uh, it has changed greatly in the sense of kind of what you all have been talking about, people moving in, but also I feel a greater connection and a great vibe, just energy, because we're starting to do more community events, which has, uh, before the pandemic even happened, begin to get uh, eyeballs from people and wanting people wanting to be a part of what's going on. And and I think I heard him mention the county. And so right now Guthrie's growing as uh more county wise than in town because we couldn't we can't get more people into uh get the city limits without real development. And so and there's a little bit of that that's happening. Mm, okay. You know, we've talked about um safety, right? Uh and safety and, and crime. And we've talked about housing prices. We've talked about, about how for um, a lot of workers now, they don't necessarily have to physically be where their offices are located. These are all things right. that are allowing people to reconsider where they want to live for quality of life issues. Um, but we've getting some really interesting comments here um, from folks uh, who have some concerns about you know the realities of life in smaller towns uh, in America. So this is Mary Sue, who also lives... In Vermont, uh, we're getting a lot of Vermonters today. And Mary Sue says, when you move to a rural area, you must be prepared for dirt roads, little to no internet and cell service in many areas, limited shopping opportunities, long waits for some services, very limited medical choices. And that idea of health care was picked up by Erin, who's in Missouri. And she says, I'd rather live in a place where I don't have to wait 
15 minutes to half an hour for emergency services to arrive, not just in the ER, but to arrive at a home. Pastor Coleman, what do you think about that? Is is that a, a problem in Guthrie? Uh, yeah, for sure. One of the things that we're currently working on is um, uh, jobs that will allow for people to be to stay in, in Guthrie and not have to travel. And so and one of the concerns is Internet. And so what we're looking to doing is creating a space at our church, actually, to where it's a co-working space kind of place. But also uh, we are connected them with jobs that are uh, online based. And so they can work from their home until they get better Internet or they can just work out of our, our church. Uh, and and so those are some of the things that, yeah, those things are true that 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 she mentioned. But, you know, one of the things about rural Oklahoma, too, rural Oklahoma is that. Uh, the hospitals are closing because of the funding, you Mm -hmm. know, and so you begin to face those kind of challenges as well. I started a campaign called Choose Guthrie in 2015. And part of the reason I I created that was because people in the community have to begin to understand uh, we have to, we have to choose Guthrie as many times as we can on certain things like education, sending our kids to the local schools, utilizing our hospitals, coming to local churches, because the more you go outside of the community, uh, the greater impact uh, that's not good happens in in our community. So uh, really some of those things that, that she just mentioned are true. And I've really been trying to push us to, to have this mindset of choosing Guthrie first. Mm. When we can. Ben Winchester, pick up on that thought. What do you think? Yeah, I think uh, the, uh, essentially my point on this is the, these things are out of our control in many ways. It's not our fault in our local communities that this happens to us. Uh, I think this is a pattern of extra local ownership around our private uh, sector businesses and industries that ultimately lead us to feel like we don't have a choice. We don't have any control. Uh, but you know, these things are um, a part of a broader world uh, that we live in, and we are not immune to these things in, in rural America either. So we do know that not everywhere has great broadband, but we can't make a blanket statement that nobody does. And so I think every place is different. And kind of get, hearkening back to the kind of this earlier point about you know what type of experience do people have, we're proposing a Minnesota extension here. We worked with our economic development partners, a model called resident recruitment, which is a model of you know economic development, community development, and tourism. Uh, which really kind of complements the traditional industrial recruitment model, which is, you know, we need to bring in a big employer and that's the only reason why people would move here. Well, uh, we know it's different today. So we want to complement that strategy and look at resident recruitment. So then we talk about doing things like taking newcomers out for meals, connecting them with organizations that they may have an interest in, because ultimately moving just for the job is not enough. Mm -hmm. Uh, So essentially, we know that 78% of newcomer households say the community is welcoming. But if you break it down there, if they look ahead and say, you know, I I may or may not be here in five years, for a community that is not welcoming, you end up with a retention issue, because then just 40% of newcomer households say they'll be here in five years. So this is where community matters. Uh, You know, how engaged are people? Do they feel welcomed? Um, Ottertail, Minnesota has the nation's first rural bound coordinator. Uh, they actually have a position to help work on resident recruitment. And so we've got a number of places across this uh, this, this country. Uh, Nebraska has done a really good job around people recruitment through the Nebraska Community Foundation. So we're actively working on this. We're trying to make it better uh, because essentially there are a lot of people who um, are historical figures in our communities. And you hear language like, well, you just need to learn how we do it around here. That, that's really not very appealing. So we do want to talk about how we create a more welcoming atmosphere 
for these generations of people who want to continue their lives in our rural communities. Mm. Well, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about those major urban centers and also more rural communities, but I want to give voice to someone who lives in one of America's medium-sized cities. This is Ryan, an on-point listener in the South Carolina capital of Columbia, and he likes living there. I would not want to move to the suburbs. Um, And in fact, the main reason for that is closeness of amenities and the fact that I'm able to work and live within three and a half miles of where, you know, live within three and a half miles of where I work is one of the real reasons why I like it, but also because everything I need is very close by. It is very rare that I travel more than five miles from my house, and I would not want to move to a place that caused that to happen. That's On Point listener Ryan in Columbia, South Carolina. Well, Pastor Coleman, we just got about a minute left here, and I want to look ahead with you a little bit because I was quite taken by your, um, you know, your call to action about choosing Guthrie. Um, what do you think you want for your kids as they grow up? Would you like them to, to stay or to also choose Guthrie? Or do you think that you know, maybe they might have that same sort of ebb and flow out to the urban areas and back? Yeah, no, I definitely want my kids to choose Guthrie. <laughs> uh, so much so that I started a, a program for our middle school uh, back probably around the same time, 2014 or so, that I, I bring in uh, people around our community that can speak into the things that they do that are unique and give the, the students an idea of start dreaming up what it could look like for them to stay around Guthrie. And so uh, that starts in my home. So I'm always trying to create uh, an environment and images for my kids to be able to see themselves living in uh, Guthrie past high school. Because if our if our young people keep leaving, our best talent leaves out of our community, uh, how does that leave us? And one day we won't be here anymore if we have everybody leaving that are a great talent and we've invested in them all their lives, and then all of a sudden they leave. So yeah, I'm trying to get my kids and every other kid to stay in Guthrie as long as they can. So I just try to create an opportunity for them to dream big because there's nothing better than standing in a smaller community, being able to walk to the grocery store, walk to work, and be able to mm-hmm. go and sit on your porch and see people walking by and waving at them. Yeah. Uh, you can get that anywhere, but it's nothing like doing it in a small town. Well, Hetty Coleman is pastor at North Church Guthrie and host of the Guthrie America podcast. Pastor Coleman, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Thank you. And Ben Winchester, rural sociologist with the University of Minnesota Extension Department of Community Development. Ben, thank you. Certainly my pleasure, Megna. This is On Point.